Welcome to the Theology Matters podcast and this concluding episode of Season 2 on Religion and Economic Inequality. I'm Josh Malden, and with me on the podcast today is Mary Hirschfeld, who is Associate Professor of Economics and Theology at Villanova University. Hirschfeld holds a Ph.D. in Economics from Harvard University as well as a Ph.D. in Theology from the University of Notre Dame. She works along the boundary between economics and theology, specifically by developing an approach to economics that is grounded in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. The results have applications to questions about consumption economics, economic justice, the common good, the nature of practical reason, and the methods of economics. In this podcast, we discuss Hirschfeld's recent book titled Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, which was published in 2018 by Harvard University Press. As always, we welcome your comments and questions by email at editor at ctinquiry.org. Thanks for joining the conversation. This is Josh Malden with the Theology Matters podcast, and I'm here today with Mary Hirschfeld, who is the author of Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, and she's also Associate Professor of Economics and Theology in the Department of Humanities at Villanova University. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you, Josh. Nice, nice to be here. In the book, which I want to talk with you about today, you, you uh, tell the story of how you were an, e- an economics professor and then went on to study theology and are now a professor of both economics and theology. Tell that story. Yeah, I'll try to give a shortish version of it. So I went into, when I went into economics, I was a secular humanist type, kind of vaguely spiritual but not religious. Uh, and I went into economics with the aim of trying to make the world better because I thought human happiness had a lot to do with human um, wealth, wealth. And I was worried about unemployment. I was worried about poor people in poor countries. And I found my economic training to be somewhat disillusioning um, for reasons that end up informing the book. The approach to economics is often abstract. There's, there were aspects about the way economists think that were troubling, although you get a lot of great insights from them. So I went and taught at a liberal arts college thinking I could teach my students about supply and demand and the good things that economists have to tell about them and then I'll barbecue on weekends. And um, what happened then is I was just kind of, res- I used the liberal arts place to kind of explore history, philosophy, to kind of think about things. And then I had this conversion out of the blue to Christianity, uh, to Catholicism in particular. And that was great because part of the problem that I've been having with economics is it didn't seem to have a good answer about what constitutes actual human happiness, that economic wealth actually does not really contribute much once you get past a certain baseline level. So the theological answer about human happiness seemed much more compelling to me. So my first thought was I'll go be a contemplative nun and live happily ever after. Um, But that didn't really work out. So then I had a chance encounter with a woman. I was complaining about having had this amazing conversion and being stuck teaching a discipline that didn't really fit what I thought about things very well anymore. And uh, she says, well, why don't you just go? And I just kind of mumbled at her. And she was like, well, I feel compelled by God to ask again, like, you know, are you afraid of giving up your job? Are you afraid of giving up the money? Why don't you just do something else? And then she says, okay, look, if you won the lottery, what would you do? I said, well, I go study theology. She said, well, go study theology then. So a week later, I had my application in at Notre Dame. 
my first thought was I'm just going to study theology. I'm going to leave economics behind because there's such different ways, such different conceptions of happiness, such different conceptions of what life is about. But the fact that I was trained as an economist meant everybody kept nagging at me to try to bring the two things into conversation. Finally, at one point when I was trying to write a paper about Aquinas on private property, kind of a penny dropped that I could see where there was actually a point of contact. After thinking about it, really, it came together really pretty quickly. I could see that it gave me a way in to think about economics from a theological perspective. And what was it specifically about Thomas Aquinas that, that drew you? Just in the wake of my conversion, he's just so smart. He does such a fantastic integration of faith and reason. When you're a convert, when you come into Christianity or Catholicism from out of the secular mindset, there's just a lot of things that don't make any sense, and it seems like it's not rational to believe in God and, and kind of stupid. And um, Aquinas just gave me the vocabulary for seeing how, how to really combine faith and reason in a way that I actually think is superior to the secular understanding of the world. Um, so I had a, an innate love of Aquinas, but he, he suits this project super well for a lot of reasons. First of all, a lot of this uh, material draws on Aristotle, and I emphasize the Aristotelian component of his thought. And the reason why that's valuable is Aristotle in principle should be accessible to non-believers. He's a systematic thinker, so you have the summa, and you can just sort of see how the whole system fits together. And he thinks rigorously the way an economist does. Yeah, it's just the way his mind works was congenial to my training as an economist. So, um, and then he adds to Aristotle a theological setting that allows me to explore some things that I think are important. Talk to me also, before we turn to the book in more detail, about your teaching. So previously, before you did your PhD in theology, you were just teaching economics. Mm -hmm. Now you're at Villanova in a position in the humanities department. Talk to me about what you're teaching these days. Yeah, I, I love our, de our department in the humanities. We offer what liberal arts really ought to be. So um, our curriculum is centered around the basic questions humans confront. What does it mean to be a human person? What's the relationship between a person and society? Uh, what's the relationship between the person and the world? And what's the relationship between the person and the transcendent or God? And we uh, ask those questions in conversation with great literature, great philosophy, great theology. So anyway, it's a wonderful place to teach. And then because I have this interdisciplinary background, I'm able to address kind of here's how modernity thinks about things, kind of using an economic tools and apparatus, and, and here's the theological perspective and, to, and offer some integration. Do you ever encourage your students to think like an economist? You talk about this in the book. Or are you wanting them not to think like economists? A little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of this weird hybrid. So when I'm with economists, I'm frustrated with how narrow they are. But when, I, when I'm with non-economists, I'm frustrated with how naive they are. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do want them to see the value in what economists do understand about the world. One thing you get from Aquinas is theology is the guiding discipline in that it helps you judge and order human types of knowledge. But the human forms of knowledge have their own basis and their own substance. And so I think it's important to know what economists have learned about how markets work. So I do want the students to have that. Um, there's a tendency on the part of people who are in the humanities to dismiss markets and capitalism and think of it as entirely unjust. And while there's, I think, a lot of substance to those critiques, it's a, it's a partial take on the, on the phenomena. And I want them to see the other side and to, and to get a more balanced perspective. One of the things you talk about in the book is how economics textbooks, while on the one hand trying to claim that economics is a purely descriptive discipline, also, in a sense, enjoin their readers to think like economists, for example, with respect to opportunity costs, as an example. 
or sunk costs. And you have a story in there about sunk costs and you're, you're buying opera tickets. You might want to dwell on that for a second. But so that's why I was wondering, you know, this question of should students think more like economists or is that a kind of way of thinking that it, at least as individuals they should avoid? Descriptively, economists have a pretty fair description because a lot of people do try to, you know, maximize their utility the way economists describe. So almost everybody thinks that more income is better than less income. They think about efficiently spending their money to get as much of what they want as they can with the money they have. So descriptively, I think you need to know what economists have to say. Um, my challenge is whether it should be prescribed. And economists deny that they're prescribing it. They think they're just describing. But then when they turn to teach students this way of thinking, this maximization of utility, which we call the rational choice model, they don't describe it. They use language like it would be irrational to, you know, uh, to take on board your sunk costs. And once you tell somebody it would be irrational to do something, you're telling them not to do it. So I'll give you the example about the sunk cost um, argument. And maybe, um, yeah, say, and maybe explain what a sunk cost is. And yeah, no, exactly. So one of the first things you'll learn when you take Economics 101 is that a rational consumer ignores, or any rational decision maker ignores their sunk costs. So what does that mean? It means basically don't cry over your spilled milk. Let's say I had invested a whole bunch of money in a power plant. Um, Washington State did this, a whole bunch of money in a nuclear power plant. But then due to cost overruns and all the rest, you can see that going forward, every extra bit of money you're going to spend is going to be lost. Your standard person is going to say, but you already spent billions. You can't lose that. So we got to keep going. And the economists will say, no, you have to ignore that. That's, that's, that cost is there whether you go forward or not. And all that matters is the cost you incur yeah. going forward. So ignore your sunk costs. Um, the other example we use would be like if you're playing poker and you thought you were going to get that straight and you were betting accordingly, so you put all this money in the, in the, in the pot, and then on the last card, you didn't get it. Um, and unless you can bluff your way out of it, and you know that you can't bluff your way out of it, it would be irrational to bet so much as a penny even though you had $100 in there mm -hmm. because the penny is just going to add. Now you lose $100 in a penny. Right, so it'd be better just to lose the $100. Does, does that make sense for them? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So there's a lot of situations where ignoring some costs is, in fact, rational. Um, but if you think human happiness has a lot to do with cultivating virtue, becoming a better sort of person, that has to do with habit formation. And if habit formation is important, it might, there might be occasions where taking your sunk costs into account actually helps you achieve your longer-term goals. So the example I give in my book is a personal example. I was a well-trained economist. I was formed by economics, and I had bought this season pass to the opera. And one day I came home, and the person I was supposed to go with canceled on me, and it was raining, and I'd had a tough day in the office, and I really didn't want to go. And the economic answer is, don't go. So what if you paid $100 for the ticket? You paid $100 whether you go or you don't go. And if it would make you unhappy to go, you're just adding on unhappiness on top of $100. So stay home. So I stayed home. The problem is, if you do that all the time, if you always ignore your sunk costs, then you're always going to be emphasizing your mood at the moment. And you're not going to follow up on what your better self had suggested would be a good idea. Um, and you will fall out of the habit of just kind of Sticking to that original attention, even though at the moment it seems bad, and you would consistently, and this has been the pattern in my life, you consistently find yourself 
not going to the concert, not going to that party, kind of just not doing these things that if you had a policy of respect your sunk cost, you would do. Um, a, another classic example would be gym memberships. You buy the gym membership with the intention of making yourself go. And the only reason that can work is if you pay attention to your sunk cost. Say, oh, I spent this money on the membership, I better go, even though I don't want to in the moment. And the economic mode of analysis says, no, ignore your membership, that's a sunk cost. Don't go if you don't feel like it. And you end up not cultivating the habit of going. Yeah, in the book you talk about, this is one of the problems of thinking at the margin, as economists do, marginal benefit versus marginal cost. And you give these examples, and uh, you also talk about sort of a marathon runner they have six months to train for a marathon. Whether or not they go for a run today is actually, in terms of a very narrow sense, in terms of the marginal benefit, uh, may not be all that important. In other words, even if they skip today, they could still make up for it and run every other day, let's say, for the next six months. But you give these examples about why that actually can create problems over time. Now, now, to be fair, economists are actually perfectly well aware of those kinds of circumstances. Um, they call it dynamic inconsistency, where your short-run calculation would differ from your long-run calculation, and how do you get them to come into alignment? The quarrel I have with them is they think it's only in rare circumstances that happens, and I think it's actually much... The, the, to live life well is more about building up an integrated whole of purpose, and if I, if I compartmentalize all my decisions, I won't pay attention to how it adds up. Um, so basically, from my perspective, what economists would call a dynamic inconsistency problem is pretty much a problem of life. And, and so that yeah. habit of thought they're teaching is one that downplays that problem. Turning to the book itself, uh, we've talked a bit about you know, why you found Thomas Aquinas, especially as a helpful conversation partner in bringing theology and economics together, but maybe talk a bit about that interdisciplinary conversation itself and the way you yourself found it a challenge even after you were studying theology. The, the problem has to do with um, the blurring between describing the way the world is and thinking about how you want the world to be. So to use economic jargon, the positive description, describing how things are, versus a normative evaluation of what we want to be. Okay. And economists themselves don't really fully understand the distinction between those two, I don't think. Um, but non-economists really don't. And so they really collapse the two concerns together. So uh, one of the examples I start off with in my book is a lot of non-economists will look at something like, say, minimum wages and say, this is clearly a good policy because we want to help the working poor have better lives, so let's put on this minimum wage and, and, and that would be the right thing to do. And, a and then they think economists are morally challenged because at least some economists will say minimum wages are a bad idea and they will accuse them of having bad faith, like, oh, you just care about keeping the profits high for the firms, you don't care about the poor workers, you're ruthless, heartless, mean people. Um, there's an awful lot of economists who actually went into the profession for the reasons I did. They wanted to help with unemployment and poor people and all the rest. And if they take the position, and not all of them do, but if they take the position against a minimum wage, their reason for doing so would be because as a descriptive matter, the policy of the minimum wage will tend to cause unemployment and will tend to hurt the very people you want to help. So the theological critiques just don't understand that that the people who are arguing for policies that seem to them to be nasty are actually share the goals. They just disagree about the means for reaching them. 
So that's one place where the two sides just end up talking past each other a lot. So I try to provide, in, especially in the opening chapter, an apparatus for at least theologians to see how, how they should integrate the two disciplines. Because um, the concerns they have are right. Because economists, even though they hide behind, it's always descriptive. In the, in the critique I give of economics, I'll say actually a lot of these normative considerations are buried in their descriptive um, work. So I, I try to point the theologians to what the right critiques are. Basically get rid of the naive, easily dismissed critiques so that they can get to the ones that work better. Um, and then at the same time, I'm trying to encourage economists to see the value in the work they have, but also the limitations it has. Maybe speak about the moment you discuss in the book where you had a sense of you understood economics and you, you understood theology, but when, when people asked you a question about you know, one or the other, you could only answer as a theologian or as an economist, as I took it. You hadn't yet sort of integrated the two. Yeah, it was, I mean, if somebody asks you, like, what should a just wage be? If you think about it theologically, you're going to think about what does a person need to survive well and flourish. And if you think about it as an economist, you're going to think, what will the market bear? And those are two completely different logics. And, and, and I will confess, that's still tricky. <laughs> but I just didn't really know how to bring the two into conversation. The moment of enlightenment for me was I had decided to write a paper for my advisor, Gene Porter, on Aquinas on private property. I had assumed I would be an easy paper to write. Like, I know everything about private property. I love Aquinas. How hard can this be? So I procrastinated, as we already discussed. So it's the night, two night before the paper's due, and I sit down to write it. And I, and I read, again, what Aquinas said about private property. And, and he says, private property is licit. It's just. We can have private property with respect to the power to procure and dispense. With, with respect to our ability to own and manage our property, there's good reasons to have private property. But then with respect to the way you spend your money, the way you deploy the money you earn from your private property, then you should hold it as if it's in common. When he gives us reasons for why it's okay to have private property with respect to ownership and management, he gives three reasons. And the first one was because at the end of the day, you're going to work harder for yourself. You're just going to be more motivated to go out and plow the field if you're feeding your own family. And so as an economist, I read that and I go, incentives matter. <laughs> like, you know, you have to channel people's work effort by giving them good incentives. But then you go to that second point about with respect to how we spend the money, use the money, we should hold it as if in common. And then I'm sitting there going, how does that balance out? That seems directly contradictory. We have to have private property so I'll work hard because of because I want to take care of myself. But then I'm supposed to give it away. Like, why do I get out of bed and go plow the field if at the end of the day I'm giving it away to my neighbors? So I was like, okay, Aquinas is my hero. He's really smart. He can't be this dumb. <laughs> and I'm like up all night going, what's going on here? What's going on? And finally, at six o'clock in the morning, after just the longest night of my life, the penny dropped. And the penny dropped was he doesn't understand self-interest the way economists do. He thinks I should go out and plow my field, and I'm more motivated to plow my field to feed my family. But then, once I fed my family, if my field was more productive than that and I have extra, I should be well disposed to giving that away because for Aquinas, wealth is always instrumental. I need however much it is to live in a reasonable standard of living, and my desire for it should be correspondingly finite or bounded. So he has this different anthropology that invites us to come in to right relationship with wealth. And once I saw that, I saw that a lot of the things that make economics unstable or give people that nervous feeling about, gee, markets work, but on the other hand, there's this exploitation, all those tensions 
revolve around our shared modern assumption that we all want to get as much as we can get, which is what economists assume. Once you see that there's a better way of pursuing happiness that has this bounded desire for wealth, it gives you a way to develop an economy that actually could serve human flourishing in a way that does justice to what markets can do. But because it's utopian, people are still going to always want as much money as they can get. It can help you explain why markets work the way, I mean, why the economy actually produces the results it produces. So it gives you both a normative description that's powerful and attractive, but also a realistic assessment that in the real world, that's not likely how things are going to work. And then that gives you tools for thinking about what can economic analysis do to help us understand the world we live in, but it also gives you a picture of what would constitute actually a good economy. Would it be too simple to say that one of the things you're arguing is that theology, perhaps other normative disciplines like philosophy, they provide the goal, let's say the goal or set of goods, and economics provides the means by which to achieve that, or it interrogates the means by which we might try to achieve that goal, which is determined by some other field outside of economics. Yeah, ideally that would be the case. And then the one thing that I would add though is the economics itself needs to be clearer. Economists just don't question that more is better. That overlap, that it's, I've only sketched it, but I think there's a lot of fertile territory in there to work out how to balance kind of an accommodation of people as they are, but also wanting to create policies that could help suggest that there's better modes of pursuing happiness. So they can right. help you think through that. And the, and, and the only danger is because they always use the language of incentives mattering and incentives matter to people who are trying to maximize their incomes. They're endorsing the, the idea that the pursuit of happiness has something to do with maximizing income. And so the economists I want are the ones who are willing to concede that people act that way, but construct their policies in a way that don't endorse the way incentives matter, which is tricky. And it would be a case by case judgment about when we set up policies that play to the fact that incentives matter, and when do we set up policies that keep, give people room to act out of other, better, higher motives, which are, out, are there. There's an economist named Sam Bowles, and it's his most recent book, and I'm not going to get the exact title. He's actually been approaching that exact conundrum, that economic policies always play off of incentives, but that can lead to certain results if it undermines norms or other forms of behavior. And so he also is opening up space for this more complicated approach to policymaking that that recognizes that while incentives matter, that's not the entire thing that motivates human beings. Yeah, I've got the book here in you footnote, uh, Samuel Bowles, The Moral Economy, Why Good Incentives Are No Substitute for Good Citizens. There you go. Yeah. Would the field of behavioral economics then sort of address some of your concerns? It's the area where I think there's a lot of overlap or, or a place where we could do a lot of interesting work. The behavioral econ economics as currently practiced still does not, still thinks that it would be desirable for people to maximize their utility. So I think they're, they're wrong that that's an ideal. But their practice of looking at what people actually do and noticing that people are motivated by other things is fertile territory. And I think a lot of good work can be done in that area. And some, and some is, like, like Sam Bowles but, mm -hmm. and some of his um, colleagues. Yeah, I took it as one of the points of the book that on this question of human nature, you know, what the human being is, is really where there can be the most kind of commerce discussion and even debate between economists and yeah. theologians, philosophers, and so on. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think theologians and philosophers need to, need to think harder about the ways that incentives do matter, because they do, 
for, for most of us. Um, and then economists need to be more aware of the way that other things matter, like being a good citizen, like wanting to, you know, wanting to be a reliable stand-up sort of a person that can lead to a different set of choices than the economic model would predict. Yeah, maybe let's delve into that issue a bit. You talk about rational choice theory, and maybe if you could discuss what that is in economics and then what your critique of it is from a theological perspective. Um, the rational choice model says that um, people try to maximize their utility. And by utility, what they mean is getting, um, pretty much just satisfying your preferences, getting whatever it is that you want. So notice right away, um, a lot of people read that to think that economists are about trying to, when they think, talk about maximizing utility, they think about it as maximizing my selfish utility. Like I wanna get the biggest house I can or the nicest car I can. Uh, and economists think that plenty of people want those sorts of things. But this idea of trying to um, satisfy my preferences as well as possible obtains no matter what kind of preferences I'm trying to satisfy, right? So Mother Teresa trying to serve the poor in Calcutta. For an economist, she's a rational, she, she's following the rational choice model. She takes her limited resources and deploys them as effectively as possible to achieve her preferences, which would be feeding the poor, offering, you know, uh, beds for the sick and, and so on. So the basic idea behind the rational choice model is I have this set of preferences, these things that I want, and, I, and it's an unlimited array. Um, so if I'm Mother Teresa, I'd like, to, I'd like to feed five people and have beds for 10 people. But if I had more money and I could get feed 10 people and have beds for 20 people, that would be even better. And if I could feed 100 people and accommodate 300 people, that would be better. It just keeps going endlessly. And that's true for all of us. We have our desires, and then we can always imagine one set of things that would make us happier, one, one bundle of goods that would make us happier. So an endless desire. I think of it as a ladder that just goes up indefinitely. And then, sadly for us, we have these infinite desires, and we only have so much money, and we have only so much time. And so we can't get all the way up to the top of the ladder or, you know, go up to infinity. So we calculate given that I have this budget and this much time, how do I spend my money and time so as to get the best possible bundle within reach? And, and if I do that well, I get to the highest rung I can get given my limitations. That's the rational choice model. But notice, if that's my model, then the thing that's gonna make me happier is just it, releasing those constraints, getting more money or getting more time. So on the one hand, the rational choice model seems like it's indifferent to what goods you pursue. Maybe you want to read more. Maybe you want to have more conversations with your friends. You have these noble desires. It looks like it's not judging that. And it looks like it would accommodate people who have reason, you know, good, humane goals. But once we've conceived of those goals as extending ever outward, then what we're all really going to care about is loosening those constraints, which means we're really going to want more money and we're going to want more time. We're going to want progress. We're going to want economic growth and we're going to want it endlessly. The, Aquinas would share with the economists the idea that in our heart, we actually do want an infinite good, right? Um, but the infinite good that we're built for is God. And God is not at the end of that ladder, right? Uh, it's just a basic theological, there's no stairway to heaven. And so the way that Aquinas thinks about happiness in human life, true happiness, genuine human flourishing in, in human life, is it accepts and embraces its own finitude. And it's more a matter of perfection than maximization. And it can be very hard to describe. And it took me a long time to really inhabit the distinction. But it's a way of seeing like what aspect of the good, because there's, you know, 
if God's infinitely good, then the finite world manifests his goodness in a wide array of goods. So my project as a human being is not to get as many of those goods as I can. It's to figure out which goods are particularly suited for me to instantiate and then sink into them and perfect them. And that in doing so, I become a perfect version of myself. And that's what draws me closer to God in this life. That's what draws me to true happiness in this life. So it's respecting my finitude. So two examples. One, I might think, okay, I'd like to be a professor because I love talking to people about ideas. It would have been fun to be a doctor also, especially given what's going on right now. And I could go and, and, and be on the front lines. And if I had more time, I would like to be a concert pianist. And I could think I could do all these things. But notice how scattered that would make me. And if I had all the, if I had all, you know, if I could extend time forever, there would still be this dissipation in that. For Aquinas, it's like, no, you're a professor. Be a professor and do that well. And then let somebody else do the doctoring thing. And, and do that well, and, and then we can exchange. And, and by appreciating the diversity of goods that we manifest in our various lives, we get an aspect of the wholeness of God's goodness. The other example I like to use is marriage. So from the economist's point of view, how should you think about marriage? You look for a partner who would maximize, satisfy your desires as best as possible. Um, and Gary Becker does this explicitly. So you go on the marriage market, you find the partner that's, you know, that you can, you can attract, that's the best possible. And then if it turns out that partner's not as good, you re-optimize and you go out and find another partner that would you know, do better so you can get higher up that ladder of marital happiness. In this critique of the rational choice model, you're wanting to say you know, there is this sort of higher good that we can aspire to, you know, virtue and so on and so forth. I thought about the language of second order desires where, we act, where someone actually desires that their own desires will be reordered in some mm -hmm. way. Would you be able to see that as accommodated with the rational choice model, or is that precisely the kind of phenomenon that you think needs some other sort of philosophical framework? Um, economists do try to model that situation. They're aware that it happens, but those models are exceptions. And their rule is that our preferences are what they are, and we just want to get as much of it as we can. And the project of cultivating virtue is learning what's good to want. And, and about all things, and especially for me, moving from this idea of extension, getting more, getting more, getting more, to thinking more about how do I deploy what I have in a way that's harmonious and beautiful and actually flourishing. Maybe as a, a final sort of barrage of questions, and you can answer any of them you'd like, uh, perhaps all. You did mention the the pandemic we're in, and I thought I might get your your thoughts from as an economist and a theologian about how you're thinking about about this this time period. And then also a very, in some ways, unrelated question. I'm curious about what the reception of this book has been, uh, especially among economists. So you're trying to lay, lay out a, a Thomist economics, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a very different perspective from what you see in a lot of uh, mainstream economics today. So what's been the reception of that? Better than I expected, but I expected no reception whatsoever. So I've had a little bit um, there are some economists who are getting uncomfortable with the strong assumptions built into the rational choice model. Um, and, and some of them have responded to the book. Um, they don't necessarily embrace all of its conclusions, but they like the questions it raises. Um, but the other crowd that I've gotten um, of economists that I've been able to work with is a young uh, econ students starting out with their studies and PhD programs or thinking of going on to PhD programs. Um, I've been teaching for a long time with some colleagues at Notre Dame uh, a, a seminars every summer on 
Catholic social thought and economics. Uh, Joe Kabosky is an economist at Notre Dame who works in that program with me and Martin Kramers. There's a lot of people who come in in that program who are economists who are really anxious to pursue something like what I'm talking about. So I, I think there's a hunger for it. And part of the thing about the book is you're, you're not sort of saying, you know, here's the, the Christian view, you know, you must, you must accept this because it's re- revealed from on high. I mean, one of the main things you're saying is this helps us think about, you know, alternative ways to think about the human being. This is one option. It doesn't necessarily, maybe it won't be persuasive to everyone, although you give a lot of good reason why, why it might be. But it's more of helping people. I could imagine a, a sort of secular mainstream economist saying, well, you know, I don't agree with the actual position, but I think, I think she's right that there are all these sets of normative assumptions I, I've been assuming that I haven't even thought about. Exactly. And that's one of the main goals. So I like to say, you know, I say it in my preface and, and when I'm talking to economists, it's like, I don't need you to come over and be a good Catholic Thomist person like me. I need you to notice that your own economics is built on strong philosophical, theological foundations. I want you to notice there's a strong normative component. Um, I think you would do well to think harder about the connection between economic life and actual human happiness, whatever that looks like. So just take seriously the questions I'm raising. But I am trying to sneak in. And by the way, the picture I'm able to derive from my assumptions is attractive. One other question I had uh, is, there's been a lot of discussion, and this is part of what we've been looking at at CTI, about specifically about economic inequality. That's kind of been the, the topic, uh, you know, especially that theologians, I suppose, have been interested in. What do you think about this, this topic, inequality? Yeah, no, I think, I think in, I'm going to say inequality and not economic inequality. Okay. I think inequality in our culture is really profoundly important, clearly a rising issue. One of the messages of my book is that we are all, whatever our relationship is to the economy, we're all overly impressed with the importance of economic things in terms of how that relates to human happiness. We let economic variables cover up for the actual human goods that are served by economic life. And so one of the things I do in the book is try to get you to invert that and see that economic activity and money and wealth is in service of actual human goods. And then one of the messages then is when you think about these problems, get out of the habit of thinking about it in terms of money and get in the habit of thinking about it in terms of the actual goods that are served. So when it comes to economic inequality, it often sounds like what people who are worried about economic inequality are saying is getting as much money as you can is really important. And what's wrong with the world is that some people get a whole lot of it and other people don't get enough of it. And that underscores, it emphasizes the message that money is what matters. And I want to say when it comes to inequality, maybe it's not the difference in incomes that matters, but what those difference in incomes mean socially and personally for how we play things out. So you could imagine a world with a fair amount of economic inequality, but where the people who have more money are still plugged into their communities and engage with their neighbors of all different walks of life with complete and utter respect. Um, Because they're wealthy, they are probably more apt to want to share. Um, but the big thing is they see each other and they recognize each other. That strikes me as being a good e- economy, even if it has a fair amount of inequality, because what matters is the social standing and respect, the fact that everybody has and that everybody's integrated into the community and that there's meaningful communal, communal life. What's going on in our culture now, though, is that the people who have money are going off behind the walls. So there's just this big chasm, and, and, and especially this massive disrespect for people who are at lower walks of life. And I think it's actually the disrespect, at least I'm worried at least as much about the disrespect as I am about the money they have. 
And the importance of that critique is, or that point is, if you just do it all in economic terms and you worry about economic inequality, you're going to get somebody on the right who will come in and say, but all this rising inequality has been accompanied by that rising tide lifting all boats, right? So that even though the people at the bottom of the ladder are further below, they're higher up than they otherwise would be. And therefore it's okay. And like if, if the poor are prosperous enough, and if you're talking about America relative to, you know, historic standards of human poverty, there's not very many people who suffer from that kind of poverty. You're not going to get those people to pay attention to the real problem with inequality in America, which I think has more to do with the social disparities. So one exa example I like to use is just within an academic setting. Everybody there is pretty liberal. They care about economic inequality. They might even lobby for the janitors to get paid more, but they don't know who the janitors are. Like they don't talk to them, right? The, the janitors are pretty much invisible. And I, I think it's that invisibility that strikes me as being really humanly pernicious. And, and we don't see, like when we talk about getting rid of an economic inequality, we talk about giving everybody opportunities who want marginalized or poor people to have access to college education. And I'm thinking, but what about the kids who, who really want to be gardeners. Like, you know, that's really what, that's really their calling. I want a society where the gardener holds his head up high because he's providing a really important service. And I, I, I would hope one of the silver linings maybe to come out of this crisis we're in is we now maybe have a better idea that, you know, the people working in meat packing plants, the people that are trucking the food to our grocery stores, um, the orderlies in the hospitals, all these people are doing valiant and important service to us. And maybe they should get more dignity and respect. And sure, pay them better. That's, I mean, that could be part of it. But I want it to be a bigger picture about the whole, whole package of human flourishing. Well, Mary Hirschfeld, thank you. I think that's a good uh, point on which to close. A very, uh, I think, inspiring point about the current crisis we're in and, and indeed how your, your book that you came out in 2018. So, of course, it came out before we were in this crisis, but how it, it can speak to this time. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.